0: Continuing in our series in Psalms, please turn to Psalm 80. If you would like to follow along in the Pew Bible, that can be found on page 491. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please feel free to take a Pew Bible as our gift so you'll have something to read there. Psalm 80, verse 1, please, as you're able, to stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 80 verse 1, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine the stock that your right hand planted for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord. Of God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Please be seated.
1: As we open God's word together, let us take a moment and commit this time and our hearts to the Lord. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a a glorious time in which we have the opportunity, the blessing of being able to enter together, to explore together your word, your revelation of yourself to us, and I pray that... um, as we worship in the study of your word, that uh, you would open our ears, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to respond, that we, might, uh, that we might glorify you in all that we say and we do, and that we commit this time to you and to our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> As Johnny mentioned, we are... Continuing on the series of Christ as Our Shepherd, in last week, uh, Andrew walked through Psalm 23 with us, and this week we have the opportunity to spend some time considering Psalm 80. Uh, it's written by, by Asaph, it's a psalm of Asaph, it's one of the first things that's listed there, and uh, by the way, in, we, we list it differently, interestingly enough. We have it as a little, a little header to our psalm, uh, but uh, in many Bibles, it's actually the first verse. Would actually say the first verse is to the choir master according to Lily's the testimony of Asaph a psalm that verse one and verse two. So uh, if I'm in if we're in Germany or whatever that the German Bible has that as first verse. So the Asaph Asaph was he wrote one of about twelve psalms. We don't know who Asaph was, but he was a uh, at least he was a member of the musicians musicians and singing guild of the uh, of the temple. So he was an Asaphite and they had a whole group of them. And so apparently, um, as Mark has oftentimes argued, that, um, that the mu- magici- magicians, musicians and, uh, and, and musical folks are held in very high regard in the scriptures to the point that whole sections of scripture are written by them. So um, John Calvin, in his discussion of the Psalms, in his introduction to the Psalms, says, I have been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of anyone of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life of all griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. And so this morning, if your mind is agitated, you may be thinking to yourself, this is really not where I want to be this morning. I have too many other problems. Uh, I've lost my job, lost my health, I've lost family members. My life is not going the way that I was hoping it would go. In fact, I'm not even sure about this whole God thing. God feels far away and distant. This is the psalm for us. The writer here is grieving. He's grieving for the situation of actually other members of his family, his people. And so he comes to God with a basic plea. It's supported by a a series of appeals. And the the pleas and appeals that he has, and I'm broken it into four sections, appeal for God's people. By the way, he's appealing, we'll get to this, but he's appealing for the sake of The northern kingdom, his people, but he's not, they're in the southern kingdom, and and they've been fighting each other for years and years and years, and yet, they're family. It's like, we can fight, family can fight, but don't anybody else mess with family. So God, something has happened to the northern kingdom. They've all been taken away, and they're suffering, and because of that, Asaph, in the southern kingdom, is suffering for them and praying on behalf of them and he's actually feeling the pain with them so he makes it appeal to God he pleased to God an appeal to God to the shepherd the first one verses one through three is going to appeal to God's character and his promises second one second point is appeal to God's sense of pity due to his enemies then appeal to God's purposes, and finally, appeal to God's faithfulness and compassion. Appeal to God's character and promises, God's sense of duty, I'm sorry, God's sense of pity due to his enemies, appeal to God's purposes, and appeal to God's faithfulness and compassion. Now, Tim Keller, when he was uh, preaching, when he preached on the book of, jo- of Jonah, if you've ever heard him, his sermon series on the book of Jonah, he really starts off with an illustration that says that, Reading through the book of Jonah is a little bit like watching the movie The Sixth Sense. That is, you can only watch it once. Uh, After that, it's a different movie, right? Once you've gotten to the end, you go back and you watch it at the beginning again, and it's a different movie. The looks, the colors, the thoughts, the, the approach, it's all quite different. And it's never quite the same movie. It doesn't hold that same tension as it did when you first when you first saw it. For him, the book of Jonah was that way. And I'm going to argue that in some ways, Psalm 80 is a little bit that way. That when you get to the end, it's kind of like all the pieces come together. And you realize, wait a minute, that wasn't what I was thinking at the beginning. So when, uh, when Asaph begins his prayer, he has this... Has a, so Asaph's approach to God, when he, when he enters into this dis- uh, discussion, this prayer to God, he starts off extraordinarily boldly. He comes, he says... He doesn't just say, dear Lord. He says, give ear, O shepherd of Israel. Listen up. I've got something I need to talk to you about. He doesn't come as, a, as an applicant, like, please listen to me. He's like, I'm coming right into the throne room, and I've got some things I need to share. There's some, there's some big problems here. Are we, are, we, are we allowed to approach God this way? It seems, it seems a little bit cheeky, but he does. Give ear, listen, O shepherd of Israel. Things are not going well. We need to be rescued. Now, he's not going to be suggesting that the church is guiltless. I'm going to use, in good Presbyterian way, I'm going to use the people of Israel and the church rather interchangeably here because they're God's people. God's people under the old covenant, God's people in the new covenant. We're God's people. We are children of Abraham. We're followers of Jesus Christ. We are the church. We are Israel. So, Asaph is not arguing that the church is guiltless. He just wants to be rescued, and he's going to give his arguments as to why God should rescue his people, and it's That is, he wants God to rescue his people from judgment. They've been his enemies, sure, but they're family. Yeah, they're guilty of all kinds of terrible things, but they're still God's people. I'm curious. When it comes to praying for God's people, when it comes to praying for family, when it comes to praying for brothers and sisters in Christ who stand on the opposite side of an aisle from you, politically, personally, relationally, in any way. Do you pray for them, or do you take pleasure in one mis- of oh, those misfortunes? There's a the, the classic expression, a word in German that is, is used actually in English now. It's called schadenfreude. Uh, it, is, it is called accident joy, is really how literally it translates. And it's, it's the pleasure you get out of someone else's suffering. It's the ha ha, okay, you've just described Schadenfreude when you do that. So so to what degree do you and I, if we're honest, when we see our people that we disagree with, we see our enemies, do we is our response to go, ha ha? ha. Or do we like Asaph? Not pray simply for them. You'll see you'll see his the pronouns that he uses. He says, save us, Lord. He doesn't say save them, Lord. Like, they're the ones out there that need help. Point your face toward us and save them, Lord. No, no, no. Save us. Oh, Father, I need you. How desperately we need you. And, he, and so, so he says, he reminds God of the conversation that Israel, Israel that is Jake, uh, Jacob, had in Genesis. He says, you are the shepherd of Israel. He goes all the way back. See, he knows that this God to whom he is speaking has a very long memory, and this very, this God to whom he's speaking, whose memory is so very good, can be reminded of certain things. Not that he's forgotten, but because we need to hear those promises again and again. He says, "All right, God, I'm reminding myself and you that you're the shepherd." You promised back back in the law in the in the Torah in the very first book of the Torah in chapter 49 when Jacob was laying out his blessings to his sons he says he says <clears throat> that you promised to be Joseph's shepherd. See, uh, verse 24 says Joseph's his Joseph's arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone, the rock of Israel. By the God of your father, who will help you, by the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. God, have you forgotten that? You're the shepherd. You promised to be Joseph's. You were promised to take care of the flock of Israel. He would care for Joseph and his offspring. That shepherd would protect his sheep from the enemies that would devour those sheep. God, you promised. Can you do that? How often have you been there? He well, said, God, you promised. I'm going to remind you of some promises, Lord. I need your help. And then he lists Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. These children are the, These are the sons of Rachel, the one whom Jacob loved. Technically, right, there are 13 tribes, well, Two half-tribes, 12 sons. These are the ones whom Jacob loved, but they also stand for all of the people, all of the, the chosen people of God of the northern kingdom. So there he is in verse 1 with reference to the cherubim. It says, You who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. Now, the cherubim, of course, we usually do think of little squishy round babies, but they were not little squishy round babies. They were tall, fearsome, four-headed, multi-winged creatures. The head of a man, the head of a a cherub, the head of a man, head of a lion, and the head of an eagle, I believe. Their main responsibilities throughout the Bible was to magnify the holiness and power and glory and sovereignty of God. In addition to praising God, they served as a visible reminder of his glory and his abiding presence with his people. Standing there at the opening of the garden, it was the cherubim who drove Adam and Eve out after they'd sinned. They... well, he wielded swords and they, and they flew around the, the king himself. And everywhere the cherubim were, God was there. God The two pictures that we we're given here is that God is enthroned in power and glory, but the other picture that we have, besides this, this view of God in his, in the, on his throne, surrounded by cherubim, is the Ark of the Covenant. There, on the Ark of the Covenant, are two cherubim. And they're leaning forward. Their their wings cover, point inward toward the the Ark of the Covenant. Underneath, inside the Ark of the Covenant, is the law. Justice. The rules, the, the foundational rules of the covenant that God has made with his people. But right between the two cherubim sits God himself. he sits on the mercy seat. And on the day of atonement, the priests would would come forward, right? They would come forward with their their blood sacrifices to pay for the sins of the people. And it's there on the mercy seat, in his holiness, in justice, ruling in justice and glory and power, God would be present with his people and would be merciful to them. You're the shepherd. You promised. And you're sitting on your throne, surrounded by the cherubim. But you're also the one who comes to be with your people on the day of atonement. There's a a cry on the part of Asaph for theophany, right? There's a cry for God's physical, his actual presence with his people. You rest between the cherubim. This is who you are promised to be our shepherd, so be our shepherd and come be among us again. And if your face will only shine on us, then we'll be saved. If you only, if you only look on us with a smile, this dark frown of judgment is more than we can bear, but if you only, if you only smile at me and respond to me as one that has your approval, That all will be right again. If you're going to make an appeal to God for something, it's a great place to start. Start with his character and with his promises. But then you see, Asaph changes his argument a little bit. He goes from an appeal based on character and promises to an appeal based on a cry for pity. And he starts his appeal by addressing God using a different name. He's been referring to God as shepherd, or even as God, or Elohim, which is the Hebrew word for just God, in verse 3. And he changes over to, you'll note in the scriptures, to Lord, all capital letters, God of hosts. Or Yahweh, Elohim, Sabaoth. Yahweh. The covenant keeping and making God, the personal name that God gave Moses in Exodus 3. It was this name that was used when God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's a title of, of relationship. And in fact, he connects the idea with the next line when he asks, How long will you be angry with your people? Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, has his people. How long, O oh Lord, will you be angry with them? You gave us this name of relationship. You told us that we are your people. It's like saying, Dad, how long are you going to be angry with your children? Combinate the, 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 the relationship, children and dad. It goes. It connects the two. We're not just anybody, Lord. We're your children. But he doesn't stop there. He then adds it to... The God of hosts. He is the Lord Sabaoth. Sabaoth, his name. Remember, the the Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress is our God. Lord Sabaoth, or Sabaoth, his name, from age to age, the same, and he must win the battle. Not only are you the God who makes and keeps his covenant promises, but you're the God over the great armies. You are the sovereign over all creation. And when you speak, it's done. This is, the one, this is the one you want on your side when there's a problem. This is the one when all of life is going wrong that you want with you. There is no power, there's no force, no person, no circumstance of which the God of hosts does not rule. So, he comes to God with this appeal. He says, all right, I know you're my shepherd, but I've also got a really big problem. And I need the God who's sovereign over all things, who can do it. There's nothing that is, if it's in my power, I will do so. Everything is within God's power. So with that, Lord, and since you're the Lord of the great armies, let me make an appeal for pity. Your children are suffering. Day in and day out, we suffer. And he's he's connecting himself, of course, like I said, to God's people in the north, That's Another question, do do we pray that way for believers around the world? For the persecuted church in China or North Korea? Do you pray, save us, Lord? Do you connect yourself to the persecuted church? Or do you say, save them, Lord? Because remember, their family, their brothers and sisters, who are suffering. And so we cry out to the God who can do whatever he wishes to do. And we say, save us, Lord. Shine your face on us. And then he connects, of course, God's ability to change things with the expectation that he should have pity on his people. There's, Lord, your enemies are laughing at your people. They're saying that your people have a God who won't or can't protect them. They're suggesting that you're either impotent or worse. You, you don't even exist. I'm actually, I'm not sure which is worse. worse. It's, it's not, really, not really so different in our day, is it? We're surrounded by a world that really has functionally no use for God. Certainly not the God as revealed himself in the Bible. Some will say, you know, good. If it makes you feel better, then believe that. If that's what helps get you through the day, then I say, praise, pray to whatever God you want, go for it. My answer is no. No. I don't want to believe it if it's not true. I don't want to stake my life on it if it's not true. I don't want to waste my time if it's not true. I don't want a placebo. I don't want a a psychological salve that makes me feel better but doesn't actually do anything. We have a faith that's reasonable, it's based in history. We have a huge number of eyewitnesses that were there when Christ lived, died, and rose again and appeared for the second time. Huge number of witnesses. (laughs) that, we're, that we're, are reliable. Creation itself screams that there's a God. It's the most reasonable thing that we have. I'm not believing in sort of a cosmic spaghetti monster. Just made up. Everyone is trusting in something. Everyone has his or her temple or that, she, that he or she runs to. For comfort, people just want to convince you that your God isn't real or has no power. and So the Assyrians will do the same with the people of Israel. Clearly, our gods were stronger because we crushed you. Right? We dragged you off. Your God has no power here. Asaph says, you are the God of all the great armies. Don't let, don't let them laugh at us. So we cry out, Lord, show them your power today. Glorify your name. We have the Lord of hosts. He can and does answer prayer. And so we, like the psalmist, cry out, have mercy on us. See my pain. See my tears. Even if I'm the cause of them. That's another one that stops us, doesn't it? I can't pray that prayer because I'm the cause of my own pain. No. Asaph says... Shine your face on us. Have pity on us, even though we have been the cause of our own pain and we deserve your judgment. Because I know if your face shines on me, we'll be saved, regardless of what I've done. I'm family. You're Yahweh. You're the Lord. You're sovereign. So let me lay out my plight. God, have pity on me. Have you ever been there? God, if you just show me your face. I've messed up my life. I've done stupid, selfish things. I don't deserve your pity. I never did. I don't deserve your grace. I don't deserve mercy. It's not mercy if I deserve it. God, have pity on me. So God Asaph has made made an appeal based on God's character and his promises. He's made an appeal for pity. Now he's making an appeal based on God's purposes. From this point, verse 8 until verse 13, he reminds us a bit of history. In verses 8 through 11, he covers, interestingly enough, he covers all of Israel's history from about Exodus 11 until the end of... of, um, of Solomon's reign. Verse 8, You brought us as a vine out of Egypt. You took the vine to the promised land and drove out its enemies. This vine flourished because of your purposes. Your vine. Your precious vine. Why have you let your vine be destroyed? Why have you allowed the filthy beasts take all the good things that have been ours? The filthy beasts, of course, in this case, being The Assyrians. The Assyrians. They've just come in. They're unclean. They hate God. They've trampled everything. It's not even like they come in and steal everything. They come in and they just run about crushing everything underfoot. Everything is destroyed. And all this time, I've been asking you to show your smile, your approving look. So, in doing so, that you would turn to us, Lord. Turn to us. Show us your face. Actually, he says, um, restore us, God. Verse 3 is, restore us, O God, let your face shine. Verse 7, restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we might be saved. So both of them is, Lord, restore us. Wherever position we're in, wherever you and I are, Lord, bring us back. In fact, the, uh, the expression there is also, turn us again, Lord, in repentance and bringing us back into home. Then he changes it there, doesn't he? He says, "Return, turn us, turn us, restore us, that you would bring us back to our old relationship. Turn us from our current circumstances and thoughts and behaviors back to you. But now I'm asking you, God of the great armies, to turn yourself. Turn back from your anger and smile at us. If you'll only do that, You'll be saved. Clearly, God, you had a purpose. I mean, I'll start with a vine. You have a vine. You carried it out of Egypt. You planted it. You had a purpose. You had some goal in mind. Usually with a vine, it's to have it grow, have grapes, produce wine. With a vine. You had plans. You had a plan when you rescued us from slavery. You, You carried us through the desert. You defeated our enemies. You had an end in mind. But now... Talked about the stock, S T O C K, the stock of the vine, the vine stock. But now we're a, he, he use a play, we're a laughing stock. You promised to multiply us, but now we've been driven away and scattered. We were flourishing, but now? All seems like a huge waste, huge waste. It seemed like you had a plan. You did have a plan, didn't you, God? So now why all this? Do you not have a plan anymore? Have you ever experienced that? feel like you've come to the end of yourself. You think, you think you followed what God has called and asked you to do, and then all of a sudden everything has come to a screeching halt. And you're like, God, I thought, is this your plan? This is not a very good plan, God. This is not the one I planned on. This is not going the way I had expected it to go. I thought your plan was pretty clear when you planted me here or wherever God planted you. I thought I was pretty clear when you made, made the path open for me to go this direction or that direction. And now I've come to the end of this, whatever it is, and it's not going the way I thought it was going to go. Maybe I completely missed the plan. Maybe, God, you don't have a plan at all. I'm hunting for a job. Again. I'm in trouble. Again. God, I I've been trusting. I thought I've been trusting you on this but I'm not so sure you actually have a plan. It's not one that I can decipher. And if you have a plan, you're not very good at communicating it. Asaph reminds God that there had been a plan. He reminds him that he is the shepherd and he made promises. He reminds them that in his holiness, if he'll just appear to his people on the mercy seat, then his people will be saved. He reminds him of his covenant relationship with his people and the responsibilities, by the way, the responsibilities that come with that. You are responsible, God, for your people. You made covenant promises. And he appeals to God's pity. And now, in the end, Asaph appeals to God's compassion. Turn again, you God who have turned away. Turn again back to us. Have regard. Have compassion on your vine, the vine that you so lovingly planted and nurtured. Have compassion on this plant that you have taken for your own. What's going on here is no longer a pruning. This is an uprooting and crushing underfoot. This is leaving the plant to die without hope. O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. And here, Hagar is referring to it would appear to Hagar in Genesis 16. She's been cast out of the camp, and God sees her plight and cares for her and Ishmael, and she calls God El Roy, the God who sees. And the psalmist is asking God to look down and see. If God would only see, that he would show compassion, just like he did with Hagar. God Things are going on down here, and if you would only see what's happening, I know you would change it. But but then, tucked in the middle of the text is a curious statement. In verses 15 and 17. They are, have regard for the vine and for the sun you have made strong for yourself. And for the son of man, verse 17, for the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. If you only let your hand be on him, then we'll be saved. Then we will call upon your name. In the middle of all the suffering, in the middle of all the appeals, Asaph finally places his hope for salvation in the hands on this son you have made strong for yourself. If only out of all the suffering, out of all the difficulties, he's reduced it down to this kernel. If only you will put your hand on the Son of Man, then, then we will not turn back from you. Then we will have life. And then we will once again call on your name. Asaph has landed here near the end of the the chapter, on the end of the psalm, on the solution for his people's greatest need. His people... As we told, we found at the beginning, his people need a shepherd. The people need God to be among them. They desperately need to have God with us. They need the atoning blood on the mercy seat. They need the true vine to be established forever. They need the Son of Man who is at the right hand of the Father to come and make it all right. And if he does that, not only will they be saved, but they'll also have the smile of the Father. The Father's shining gaze of love and acceptance will be focused on them. Now, clearly we've been reading through this text, Father, restore us to God, let your face shine. Let your face shine. Let your face shine. We've heard this expression before. Many, many Sundays, every week we hear this. From the ironic blessing there in Numbers chapter 6, Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so when so when Jesus Christ came to earth, the son of man came to earth and lived a perfect life and hung there on a cross, he heard not the ironic blessing. He heard the opposite. He heard the ironic curse. He heard the Lord curse you and reject you, the Lord frown at you and judge you, the Lord turn from you and give you hell. Jesus heard those words, as, uh, as Derek Thomas mentioned once, he heard those words so that we would never, ever, ever, ever have to hear them. He experienced the curse and rejection so that we would receive blessing and acceptance. He received the Father's frown and judgment so that we would experience His smile and His mercy. He saw the Father turn away from us. I'm sorry, turn away from Him. And He experienced hell so that the Father might turn to us and give us His presence. Psalm 16 says, you have made known to me, you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is what we experience, because Christ experienced exactly the opposite. You and I, we have the smile of the Father. we listened to the, looking at the list of those who have passed on this year, my Father's name was among them, and And I've been working on my house, building things. And I was driving down the street a few weeks ago with Molly sitting at my right. And I I looked at her and I said, Molly, I don't always miss my dad. But today, I miss my dad. Because I'm doing construction work. My dad and I would work on those things together and I would walk him in to show, you, show him the things that I've done and he would look approvingly at all my hard work. And it, to have the smile of my dad looking on the things that I've done and the places I've been, that f- it filled me with such, I won't say it was such joy, but it was, there was a, ah, oh, it's good. It really is good. My dad approves. How much more so when our Father in Heaven turns His smile upon us with approval and with love and affection, we go, ah, it is good. You and I have the smile of the Father. Always. Not only when we've been good enough, and by the way, we never have been. Not only when our performance is high enough And it never is. But always, because Emmanuel, God with us, Messiah Jesus, the good shepherd, the true vine, true Israel, has taken the curse and frowned for his people. So when you pray, pray boldly. Remind God and yourself who is listening to your prayers. You see, this Psalm has been about Jesus the whole time. Start off, you think it's about one thing, but it's, it's actually been about Jesus the, the whole time. He is the Father's promised response to our great need. He has already answered this prayer. So pray it boldly. Keep praying it. Because the answer is already there. He's already, this is, this is one of those approved prayers, right? This is one that you know the answer to already. So pray it and pray boldly. God, give ear. You're the shepherd. Turn to us. Save us. Thank you for your son. He is the shepherd. He makes promises. He is sovereign over all things. He, is, he has worked in the past and he continues to work today. He is God with us. And if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ... By the way, this this ironic blessing is not for everybody. The Lord bless you and keep you, Lord make His face shine upon you. It's not for everybody. You have no reason whatsoever to expect anything out of this ironic blessing, ever. You have no reason to expect that the Lord will make His face shine upon you, or ever be gracious to you. You have no expectation that He will lift up His countenance on you, or give you any peace whatsoever. On our own, we stand in judgment. And yet, because we have the great shepherd, because the son of God's right hand has come and his own blood has been poured on the mercy seat, you and I have every expectation that since, as, as we're told in Romans 5, that there, since we've been justified by faith, we do have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have every expectation that we have the smile of the Father. And he looks on us with approval. He's given you life. So call on his name. In every moment of life, big and small, important and insignificant, call on his name. You have a smile. Let's close in prayer. Father if we know you we have your smile but oh Lord if we're honest sometimes we don't care about your smile we want everybody else's approval but not yours until that time comes when everything's been taken away and you and your grace and mercy show us your smile and we can relax in you We have peace in you and the the sounds of Eden that are echoing in our ears of rejection, rejection, rejection are now acceptance, acceptance, acceptance. And so Lord, help us to love those around us because you love us. To accept those around us because you accept us. To forgive those around us because you've forgiven us. And we never have to worry whether we live it up to the standard or not because you already have We don't have to worry about your frown because we have your smile. And because we have your smile, Lord, we are saved. So go with us, Lord, by your grace and your power. Work in our lives and use us for your glory. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name.